I will be reading Mark 4, 26 through 29. Jesus also said, The kingdom of God is like a farmer who scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, while he is asleep or awake, the seed sprouts and grows. But he does not understand how it happens. The earth produces the crops on its own. First a leaf blade pushes through, then the heads of wheat are formed. And finally the grain ripens, and as soon as the grain is ready, the farmer comes and harvests it with a sickle, for the harvest time has come. It's time for kids to go to children's church. If you'd like to do that. <clears throat> Good to be with you again this Sunday. If I don't greet some of you with a holy kiss or a holy hug, forgive me. I got a little head cold thing going on. Most of you are thankful for that. Not that I was going to try to do that much, but. Uh, I want to pray, and then uh, we're going to get right into what the Word has for us today. We've got, got some good stuff to look at. Father, it's always a, uh, a pleasure for us to come before the treasure of your Word and to, to allow it to pour into us. And so, um, as Jesus will tell us, tell us here several times, give us ears to hear, to hear deeply, to hear obediently. And Father, may you help me to step out of the way today so that your Son can be heard, so that your Spirit can move and touch us, and so that your church can give glory to you and uh, announce Jesus to the world. pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been looking at some snapshots of Jesus from the Gospel of Mark. And we've been tying that in with this theme, this idea of how it is that we talk to the people that we know through our week about what it is that we do on a Sunday and what this Christian faith is all about and why is it that we gather and, you know, the, the whole thing of Christian faith. What, what does it mean to people and how can we share that? And we're discovering, rediscovering in most cases, a story that really is our story but it begins as God's story, and he invites us into it. And in Mark's gospel particularly, we're presented with these, these quick vignettes of, of Jesus on the move, at work, doing different things. And Mark is known as a very fast-paced gospel. In fact, um, he uses the word immediately very often in his writing to signify this fast pace that he keeps. But I wanted to take you to a passage today where we, we move a little bit farther down the line from where we were last week in Mark chapter 2 into chapter 4, and this is where we come to a spot in the, uh, a spot in the gospel that slows down a bit. The reader is not encouraged to have to walk or to run with Jesus to keep up anymore. We're encouraged, in fact, to pause and to take a breath and to have a seat and get a drink and a bite to eat and to hear as Jesus sits and teaches the crowds. And I want to take you through that with me this morning. I haven't communicated real well with, with Jacob or the rest of them down here to tell you where I was going last week or this week, but, 
but, but although the, the text that, that Savannah read is correct as a part of this, it's really a much bigger passage we're going to look at. We're going to look at verses 1 through 34 of Mark 4, actually. And, and this, in many ways, even though there's a chapter leap from where we were last uh, Sunday, it's a continuation of the idea because now there is a response to the invitation Jesus issues, not only to Levi, but to all of us to follow him. Uh, how do we respond to that? And that's really what he talks about when he gets into this session of teaching. Let's, let's go ahead. We've got several verses here to, uh, to walk through, and we need to discuss. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> Mark says, again, he, that's Jesus, again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So you get this picture of Jesus sitting in this boat out on the water facing the shore. They're gathered. It's almost like a natural amphitheater, and it's from that place that he does this teaching. And and it's really a good continuation of some things we've seen earlier in the gospel. In fact, there are some who suppose that this maybe even picks up from back in chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, where it says there that the crowds were with Jesus. This is a great crowd followed him in verse 7 of Mark 3. And um, they heard all that he was doing. They came to him, verse 9 says, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that they, they all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So this may be the continuation of that. He asked for the boat to be ready, and now it's boat time because the people are back. They're pressing upon him because of all he's done, and he's going to take this opportunity now to teach. But it is a little different audience that we've looked at so far. And not only with what I shared you last week with this audience of, of a tax gatherer and uh, his associates, the sinners and whatnot, not only the scribes of the Pharisees that were dealt with uh, that week and going farther back to a leper or to a paralytic, now we come to just a generic gathering of the crowds, these people who have seen Jesus do what he does, and now he has an opportunity to begin to teach them. And this is how he starts. Look at verse 2. He was teaching them many things in parables. <clears throat> and in his teaching, he said to them, listen. That's the key word for the whole rest of this section. Listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. And other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus tells a simple agricultural story which seems quite normal. There's no real hints that he gives at this point about what he's talking about. It's as though he's just telling a random story and they're like trying to make all these connections in their own minds, but it's not really happening. But we as the reader have been tipped off by Mark's account uh, just there in verse 2 before Jesus speaks that Jesus is intentionally using a teaching known as parable, where he takes this imagery, this story, this account, and he lays it alongside, it's actually what the word means, laying it alongside of something deeper that he wants them to know. 
It's something much deeper than just a sower and seeds and soils. He wants the hearers and the readers to find themselves somehow in that story. When they get to verses 10 through 12, and Mark again pauses, and he comes back to this important way Jesus is teaching. Look at verses 10 through 12. And when he was alone, that's again Jesus was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that, and here he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So Mark returns to this tip about the parables, The disciples are scratching their head over the simple story Jesus teaches. What's the connection? And the response of Jesus here is crucial to something he's communicating about the kingdom. Because he draws from this passage from the prophets, Isaiah chapter 6. You might remember Isaiah chapter 6, if you know much about Isaiah's life, is that chapter where it details this marvelous call that he had to serve God in the first place this heavenly scene before the throne of God and the cherubim and all the, the, the amazing sights that were there as he's called to serve God. And it's just on the heels of that that Jesus draws this passage to where Isaiah is told as a prophet, you know, listen, you're going to go to the people and you're going to speak for me, but they're not going to get it. Or at least they're not going to receive it. They're going to hear it, maybe even understand it to a degree, but they're not going to grasp it. And Jesus is, is impressing upon the disciples and eventually, hopefully, the crowds that, that the things that he brings to them, the word of God that he brings to them is something that has to be heard, not in a passive way, but in an active way. That hearing means receiving the truth and engaging with the truth and acting upon the truth. Because you see, the words that Jesus shares here are not just historical fragments he pulls out of somewhere and says, this is how it was in Isaiah's day. He says, this is how it is in our day. He's looking at a crowd that is very much like the people of ancient Israel who had received the words of God, but they're not quite hearing. That's why he includes that phrase, lest they should turn and be forgiven. They've heard, but they aren't ready to turn and be forgiven. That's the purpose for which Jesus came. I mean, he states that in the very opening of Mark's gospel. His announcement to them is that the kingdom has come. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn and be forgiven. Hold on to that. We'll come back to that later. And so after Mark kind of shares that little parenthetical note again about parables and why Jesus is using this, then he comes back to Jesus' explanation of the parables. Verse 13. And he said to them, this is Jesus now speaking, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Because this is really about a parable about parables, and that's a whole other thing we could go into, but it really is, in a sense, a parable about parables. Verse 14, he says, The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. 
And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, a hundredfold. So Jesus brings the explanation of the story, doesn't he? And he gets rather detailed about it. A lot of the parables that Jesus tells, there aren't this many connections, more of an analogy type thing, where each element of the story represents something. But here it does, and he's very specific about that. One thing them to see that this has to do with God's word and, and how we react to it. But he doesn't stop there, at least in Mark's account. Mark adds another couple, three layers of teaching that Jesus brings in three more parables. So you go down to verse 21, and Jesus again speaks. He says to them, to the crowds, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. A second parable. Very different in many ways, but it does connect. It's also similar to the first one in that there's this powerful gift given, like seed sown, so light is given through a lamp, and yet both are wasted in many cases. Seed rejected, seed snatched away, seed that doesn't sprout well and grow well. Light that's hidden, not used, not functional. Jesus continues, he comes to a third parable, the second seed parable, beginning in verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest is come. Now, this seed parable is even more basic than the first, isn't it? There's not even a character that's sowing the seed. It just kind of takes an in-depth look at what seed does, that the seed has this inherent power to move from planting to harvest, that it's natural, it's unseen, it's unaided by man in many ways, and yet it's certain and productive. And then one more story that Jesus shares and it's another seed parable verse 30 and he said with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it it is like a grain of mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth yet when it's sown it grows up becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade with many such parables then it says Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. That's important. As they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So he shares that last parable, that third seed parable, about something that's small but powerful, and then Mark comes back to this closing note about parables, Jesus' method, Jesus' purpose in it. Were they able to hear it? 
Now, having kind of run through that text very quickly, <clears throat> I want to step back for just a moment. And I want to consider two of the major themes that, that jump out of those stories that have an interesting tension and connection. They're the themes of, first of all, the seed or the word, which Jesus connects in that first parable. And then this, the other one that is in tension with that is ears and hearing. The seed and word and ears and hearing. These are themes and tension. And so let's deal with them separately, and then we'll kind of bring them together here in a moment. We already said that three of the four parables that Jesus shares here have to do with the power of seed. Now, I, I'm standing smack dab in the middle of a community that doesn't need to be told probably a lot about seed. This community has experienced for generations and decades this process of what seed does when it's placed in the ground. Um, and there's much that man can do to aid that in terms of preparing soil and planting and watering and proper sunlight provided and fertilizer and pest control and weed control and all of those things. But there is still this mysterious aspect about seed, isn't there? There's this spark somewhere along the line that causes this seed to burst into life. And I don't know that anybody's ever been able to really understand it, much less duplicate it. Jesus finds in that simple picture a powerful picture of God's word as well. The same God who has made the seed, this simple thing that when placed in certain conditions all of a sudden bursts into life, that's made by a creator God. And it is that same power that seems to be inherent. In fact, a greater power, I would argue, in his word itself. And yet we don't know exactly how that works. It's not, really, it's not really a surprise about this mystery of the way God works through these things that are, that are sort of understood but not understood. The power of his word. There's times in the scripture when you come across this kind of spoken of in a mysterious way. Jesus in John chapter 3 when he's having that nighttime discussion with Nicodemus about being born again talks about the mysterious moving of the spirit toward life. He says the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's this sense in which we don't really know what moves a person to finally get there. Where does that spark happen? God seems to be over that in a way that we don't see. Paul similarly talked about that power in a much more seed-oriented way in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says that I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth in terms of missionary effort. Yeah, man may be involved in certain things, but Paul says in the end, God supplies this divine spark and it happens and we just don't really know. You could point back ultimately to the, the mystery that begins all the other mysteries in Genesis chapter 1. And how does this whole thing begin? It begins with the simple explanation from Moses, God said. God speaks and things happen. God speaks and suns and moons and stars and plants and animals and man come to be. And none of us can say, well, this is how that works. 
and we certainly can't replicate it. God is doing a mysterious but an undeniable work when he speaks and things happen. His word is creative in that way. And these parables put on display the power of that. Not only the power of a physical seed, but the power of the spiritual seed of God's word. And not only the word as we have it printed for us in the Bible, but also God speaking truth through his prophets, through others before that time, announcing his purposes. And it, and it goes forth and it accomplishes something. That's what Isaiah says at another point in his prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 55, as God talks about the power of his word through the prophet and others. He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. There's something about when God speaks that things happen. Jesus, in teaching these simple stories, he's, he's really working the ground of our own ears and our own hearts to say, listen, there's something about this word that is powerful. That's when we come to this other theme that we put intention with it, ears and hearing. We know there's this power there. It's, it's right there in the soil. How well do we hear it? How well do our ears give hearing to it? Go back through those parables and all those 34 verses that we read. We won't read it again, but if you go back through it again, you can mark for yourself. I did. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of uh, overly obsessed with this sometimes, going through a passage and finding these words that pop up often again and again. And, and in this passage, 12 times, there's the word here pops up. All these different stories, even in some of the connecting parts that Mark provides. In verse 3, it starts with this word, listen. That's really the word here. Hear this. And then he tells the parable. And then he ends the parable in verse 9 with, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You look at verse 12, he talks in his explanation about that first parable, about... Uh, or before actually we get to that parable, Mark says, uh, in quoting Isaiah chapter 6, that there are those who hear but do not understand. And then Jesus, in explaining the parable, verse 15, he talks about when they hear, verse 16, when they hear, verse 18, those who hear, verse 20, the ones who hear. And then in verse 23, after telling um, that second parable about the lamp under a basket, how does he close it? Jesus says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he follows that up immediately with a statement in verse 24, pay attention to what you hear. <laughs> Listen. And then you come all the way to the end of the text, and as Mark closes out with that statement again about parables, he has that, that, that uh, kind of a, a daunting phrase, as they were able to hear it, almost raises the question, were they? Did they want to? Were they interested? And so I, I hope you get this tension. There is this tension that exists between the power of the seed of the word and it's being placed in ears of those who hear if they will hear. And so it really screams in the face of that great line from Apollo 13. Failure is an option. You know, God has created this scenario in which, yeah, this could fail. Yes, I provided the power of my word to revolutionize 
the planet and all creation, to revolutionize and transform your life. But if you choose to be hard soil, thorny soil, rock soil, it could fail. You could just let it go by the wayside. God has allowed for that, but he, he still wants us to understand that this word holds tremendous power. It's something that comes through time and time again throughout the scriptures. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, as part of his law, he says that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Just before the Israelites were, were to cross over into the Jordan, in Joshua chapter 1, he's, he's kind of getting them ready for this transition. And one of the most important things that he has Joshua tell the people is this, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. What, how does that happen? Through the word received, heard, and put into practice. Look through the book of Proverbs, especially in those opening chapters. I wanted to read this, but I knew for time's sake we probably wouldn't have it. But first few chapters of Proverbs, there's so much to say about the power of word and wisdom that God gives, how it changes life, how it gives life. And Jesus in another parable in Matthew chapter 7, this is this familiar story, all the kids learn it in Sunday school, you've probably learned it too. This is just half of it, but it's, it's the best part. When Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. The word holds tremendous power. And, and all of these parables point to that, specifically the last two parables there. This simple picture of what the seed does when it's planted. That it grows just on its own. It does this thing. We don't, can't explain it, but it holds this power. If you put a seed and put it in the right conditions, you can't almost stop it from growing. And then that marvelous picture of the mustard seed, that those small grows into this tree-like bush that is just a marvel of creation and nature. If you wonder if the word holds power, go back to that first parable and note what Jesus compares as he's explaining it later to the disciples. You know, He tells the story originally. He says a sower goes out and he throws a seed and some of it gets, it lands on this rocky, or on, this, on this pathway and what happens to the seed? What comes and takes it away? The birds devour it. Who does he say the bird is in his explanation later in verse 12? Or verse 15? It's Satan. Uh, Satan knows the power of the word. The devil knows the power of the word, and he is intent on stealing that away. He knows that if we have that, if we receive that, if we allow that to germinate in our soul and grow, he's going to lose us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And yet as powerful as the word is, as productive as the seed is, it is limited by the receptivity of the soil. As powerful as the light is, it, it is limited if it's covered up and hidden. A fool takes a lamp and places it under a basket or a bed so it can't be seen. God has given to us this power and yet we have this opportunity to squelch it, to ruin it, to waste it if we do. That's why he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
I came across some interesting thoughts from an old German theologian preacher who died over 30 years ago by the name of Helmut Thielicke. Uh Thielicke tells us that in his observations about this parable, the first one especially in Mark chapter 4, the sower, that he believes that when Jesus comes to this point of his teaching, he believes that this first parable at least, maybe the whole section, is a parable that comes from Jesus' heart out of a deep sense of grief and sorrow. He views that first parable of the seed and the sower and the soils as a parable of grief and sorrow. That's kind of an interesting thought. I got to look at it more, I thought, yeah, he's, he's exactly right. Because who is Jesus looking at as he teaches this? He's looking at these crowds. And what is that passage that Mark pulls for our understanding from Isaiah 6? He's saying, listen, this crowd of people is just like the people of Isaiah's day. Been given the word. Been given every reason to believe the word. Been given every opportunity to understand and believe the word. And they're casting it aside. And I think then Jesus does probably come with this certain sense of grief and sorrow as he teaches this, saying, listen, the seed has been cast, and there's this tremendous opportunity to see 30, 60, 100-fold of what this can do in your life and in your nation and in your, in your people, in your creation, if you'll just allow it to land on good soil. But it so often doesn't happen. People were coming, clamoring after Jesus for his power, what he could do visually, what they saw, how they could heal their needs or, or something like that. But in terms of really allowing his truth to penetrate their hearts and to begin to create something new and to bring them to life, they weren't all in on that. So you see that tension? There's a tension between what God has placed before us and this tension of us saying, I don't really know if I want that. <clears throat> I got to confess something to you as I was looking through this passage that I've, that I've been through in my own life a number of times and preached through a number of times I realized that I probably misunderstood this most of my life when it comes to that little section there in verses 11 and 12 where Jesus where Mark is explaining why Jesus used parables and Jesus says to you has been given the secret of the kingdom, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And I always thought this meant that the reason Jesus used some of these stories that were so cryptic is because he wanted people to really buckle down and dig deep and take him seriously and, and work at listening to Jesus. And then I got to looking at it again more this week and praying over it and studying it and reading other things and, and Thielicke's words helped a little in this too. Uh, that's not really the hang-up. Jesus isn't even making it that complicated. The reason people hear these parables but they don't really hear them to the death they need to hear them is not because they're somehow hard to understand and you have to have some kind of a key to unlock the puzzle. Or they have to go to them time and time and time and time and time again until they finally open your eyes. The key to understanding them is hold on to your seats, obeying what he says. Our understanding comes as we hear what he says and we say, I'm in. 
It's when he comes to the tax collector's booth and he says, follow me, and we go, okay. I set it aside and I walk and I follow you. That's where it is. That's what it was with the people in Isaiah's day. That's why they did not turn and be forgiven. You see, Isaiah's day was speaking to a people who had rejected God in all kinds of ways. Their relationships and their business dealings were corrupt. Their worship and their offerings were tainted. Their souls were lifeless. They were not living as God called them to live. They knew clearly what he'd called them to do, but they walked the other way. And their misunderstanding was not because they hadn't sit down and studied and studied and studied and studied and dig deeper and deeper and been through all the devotionals and done all the Bible readings and sat through all the Torah sessions. No, it wasn't that. They weren't willing to get up and to live what he called them to do. Understanding has to do with living it out. And I suppose most of us would benefit had we come from more of a Jewish culture, as obviously Jesus is in the midst of in his teaching. Because a rabbi in that day, when they would teach Torah, when they would teach the word, when they would call disciples to themselves, it was never about follow me and learn intellectually what I want to share into your brain about God's word. It was no, follow me and change your life. Do what I do. Become what I call you to become. Lay aside those things, take up these things, be this. It was doing the word. And when they d- did that, that's when the understanding begins to come. That's when we begin to see God as we've never seen him before. That's when the seed begins to sprout in us and grow in us and produce in us. You go back to those soils in that first parable and that's exactly it. The seed was cast, and the hard soil basically heard what the word said and said, no, I don't want it. Bounce right off me. Let the birds take it. Satan can have it. The rocky soil, the seed is cast, and the rocky soil basically says, I'll try it as long as it's easy. I'll try it for a while. It grows a little bit. It seems to be okay. But you know, after a while, it just doesn't fit. Life gets hard. Things are tough. I'm uncomfortable with it. Now, it's not for me. I don't want to do it anymore. The truth comes to the thorny soil. It's cast upon them. And they say basically to the seed, I'll try it as long as it doesn't get in the way of my lifestyle. You see, I've got an awfully comfortable life. And and if you call me to follow you, I know I probably need to rearrange things in terms of my daily schedule, in terms of my commitments, in terms of where I put my money, in terms of my relationships. And I don't really want to do that. No. No. But the good soil, when the truth of God's word and seed is cast upon it, says, yes, I'm yours, Lord. What do you want me to do first? That's when we understand. You know, it's no wonder that God's word is tough to understand at times when I'm not willing to do it. I've seen that in my life. You know, I, I have all kinds of reasons for not obeying him in this or that, and then I wonder why it's so hard to understand what he wants me to do further in my life. It's no wonder God's word is tough to understand when we're not willing to do it. I'll continue to struggle with sin until I accept the call to repent and obey. And when I accept that call and repent 
and obey, then I begin to understand more fully what the power of sin, uh, how to fight against the power of sin. He begins to weave that in me. His spirit at works in you. I don't know how it works. It's a part of grace. It's a part of the moving of his spirit. It's a life force that comes from his hand, but he does that. I will continue to struggle with living with. Uh, uh, I will continue to struggle living within my means financially until I trust God in giving and stewardship. But if I will do that and just be obedient to what He calls me to do, then I begin to see. Oh, okay, that's how He provides. He He provides for me in other ways that I would have never experienced had I not said, "Okay, I'm in. I'll do it." And then we see what He does. I continue to struggle with impure thoughts until I honor God by reading and meditating and memorizing his word. You know, you, maybe that's something you struggle with and you think, I just can't seem to get rid of those things. But if you go into his word and you allow that to become the food that you feast upon, the water that you drink, the daily place that you go, then you begin to see, oh, okay, I see what he meant. If I am obedient to that, he begins to weave that into my life, into the very fabric of my soul. If I continue to struggle with faith, not until I step out in obedience that he begins to show me how that's possible to walk with him in faith. When I say yes to what he calls, then I begin to understand. Uh, let me give you some words from another dead German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He, he has a marvelous chapter in his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, in which he talks about this very thing, about this interplay between faith and obedience. Because we, we often have this impression that that uh, I want to come to a place where in my faith it's strong enough that I say, okay, because I trust you, God, now I will obey you. And Bonhoeffer says, nope, it doesn't work that way. He calls us to obey, and then we see our faith begin to kick into gear. He says, at least in part of that chapter this way, the road to faith passes through obedience to the call of Jesus. Faith is only real when there is obedience, never without it, and faith only comes, only becomes faith in the act of obedience. There's something about when he calls and issues that invitation and we just say, okay, I'm in. That's the first step of a new life, but not only a new life in terms of what you experience, but what you understand and see of God. Because he then begins to show himself to you. When I think of that, I think one of the classic illustrations to me in all of Scripture is that scene of the Israelites as they are crossing into the Jordan for the first time as a group. Uh, it's in uh, Joshua chapter, where is it? Joshua chapter 3. And they've got to cross the Jordan River. And do you remember at this time of year what the Jordan River was like? It was at flood stage. It was massively out of its banks. And do you remember the instruction that God has Joshua give to the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders? He says, I want you to go up to this flooded river and I want you to step in it and then I'll part it. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm like, you part it, I'll step into it. No. You want me to step into a flooded river with a golden box on my shoulders and hope that I come out of this alive. Yep. <laughs> that is a call to an obedience that I'm afraid I would wilt under too many times. 
but they step. And what happens? The river begins to be held back and in no time is cleared out and dried up and the entire, however many million of them, cross over into the Jordan land for the first time. That's what these stories to me have shown me that that he's given to us this tremendous power, but we've got to hear him. And hearing means we're obedient to him. We experience the light that is hidden and the seeds that don't produce by hearing them, by hearing them deeply to the point that we say, yes, that's what I'll do. I will be obedient to you. And as I'm obedient to you, I will see you and I will know you and I will walk closer to you. Back to one more quote from a German theologian, he says, never will I get into the clear with God and never will I have peace if I only hear and go on hearing, if I reflect and do nothing but go on reflecting upon it. God must be obeyed if he is to be understood. Man, God is to be obeyed if he is to be understood. God has cast this tremendous gift before us of his word that truly, as all of scripture tells us, gives life, provides wisdom that is rich and deep and full. And the only way we're ever going to know that is to hear that with the heart and the life that does it. Even when we don't know why, even when we don't know how, but that's when we begin to see him and hear him at work. You know, a huge part of our testimony to the world when they ask us about what it is that we do on a Sunday is going to be our testimony of obedience. For them to be able to look at our life and for us to sit down with them for a moment and say, you know, I've got a story to tell you. It's not about just the things that I believe with my head or my heart. It's about here's where God called me to do this and I did this and this is what he did and this is what I saw of him and this is how I've experienced him. That's going to be a powerful testimony. Not the verses I've memorized or the things I know about God's character and nature or being able to draw out a Bible timeline from beginning to end but how he's changed my life because I said yes, I will follow you, I will go. And then he begins to change me. I want you to think about one area in your life. If you're like me, you probably think of a lot more than that. But one area of your life that you've consistently been deaf to God about. He's cast the seed in your heart, your life. And he said, listen, here's here's this thing. And it's not tough. It's It's not like you say, I don't understand that. What's the Greek for that? You know, how do we parse that in the Hebrew? I don't get that. Now, we know it, but we're hesitant to do it. And because of that, we've kind of been stymied. We've been held up. We've been standing at the wrong side of the flood stage, Jordan River, waiting to go in, but we just can't seem to take a step. That one area in your life where you've been deaf to God, maybe today is that day you say, you know what? I'm going to hear him. I'm stepping. I'm going. I'm allowing that seed to penetrate my heart. I'm all in. And I'm going to see what he does. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Father, give us ears, hearts, lives to hear you. 
Uh, may, we, may we come before you with repentance and confession and openness to say, God, I've not been listening. I have not been responsive. And now I want to hear you. I want your truth to penetrate deeply into my life and begin to produce that fruit. Not for my glory, but for yours. And not by my power, but by yours. And not by my efforts, but by your grace. God, give us the strength, each one, to take those steps of obedience. And and may you continue to bless and guide this church family to do that collectively as they move forward. Maybe not knowing where the next step is, but as they hear you speak to them, that they say, yes, this is where we need to go. We don't know why exactly right now. We don't know where it's going to lead, but this is where you called us. And so then the light will show, and then the fruit will be born, and the world will know why it is we call you Jesus, Lord and Savior. I pray it in his name. Amen. Will you please stand and sing? So I uh, heard a story here a couple of weeks ago that made me laugh, and so I thought I'd share it with you. Uh, it's been around for a while. If you've heard it before, if you could just smile and pretend to be entertained, that'd be great. But it's about legendary coach uh, Bear Bryant, and he had his assistant coaches together, and he was talking to them about what they were looking for in a recruit for their football team. And he says, there are all kind of boys out there, but we don't want all kind of boys at Alabama. He says, for instance, there's that boy that uh, – he gets knocked down, and he doesn't get back up. says, we don't want that boy at Alabama. And then there's a boy that gets knocked down, he gets back up. But then when he gets knocked down a second time, he don't get back up, and we don't want that boy at Alabama. And then there's that boy that gets knocked down, he gets back up, he gets knocked down, he gets back up. And every time he gets knocked down, he gets back up. And one of his assistants says, that's the kind of boy we want at Alabama, isn't it, Coach? And Coach says, no, we want the boys knocking all them other boys down. So, <laughs> um, so you ask what, or you know, thinking, what does that have to do with community? meditation but uh honestly probably not a great deal but uh this is the way my mind works we've been going through colossians back here and last week we went through colossians 3 uh 12 through 14 it says therefore as god's chosen people holy and dearly loved clothe yourself uh with compassion kindness humility gentleness and patience bear with each other and forgive whatever ever grievances you may have against one another forgive as the lord forgave you and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And as I read that, I thought there's a communion meditation in there, so, so here I am. Um, to me, I like the idea when we're sitting talking about communion that Christ died for me, that, that he loves me that much, and it makes me feel, you know, very special. You know, I'm a child of the king. I like that part. But then when you read this where it talks about forgive as the Lord forgave you, at first reading, I think, okay, well, that's fine. But then when you think about it, for one thing, it's not just about me. For another thing, I'm okay with it until somebody offends me, until somebody gets under my skin. I mean really gets under my skin. And then it's not fun, and I don't feel special. But if my Christianity, my walk with Christ, however I want to word it, if it's real, then Colossians 3.13 is at least in part what it looks like. You know, I can't expect Christ to forgive me if I'm unwilling to, you know, give that to someone else as well. So anyway, let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Dear Lord, we thank you for uh, paying the price that we couldn't pay for ourselves. And thank you for loving us and for caring for us. We ask that you will help us to uh, be the people you would have us to be and to show that to others as well. And for these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.